begin with the sitting tonight. Oh, in case you're the first time here, I'm Eugene Cash. This is a Sunday evening meeting of San Francisco Insight. We'll sit for about half an hour, then there'll be a talk, then a discussion. Uh, please remember during the talk to think about what you want to say during the discussion. It's really good and important to have your voice in the room for the Dharma. So, uh, very helpful to sit upright as we begin with the first foundation of mindfulness. And as best you can to sit on your sits bones so your back is relatively straight without being stiff. Wigby Island, welcome, that's great. I have a friend I believe who lives on Wigby Island. So please find the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. which really means being aware of the liveness that's sitting here, the somatic, kinesthetic, energetic aliveness that you are. And as you adjust your posture so that it's upright, so that you're not holding any extra tension in your jaw or your shoulders, or really any part of your body that we, you can allow to relax a little more, When you've done that, please let your awareness saturate your physical experience so that your, the mindfulness of the body is not from a distance. And of course, it's very helpful to be mindful of the fact your body is breathing. 
You might be aware of the breath at the nostrils or the chest or the rising and falling of the belly. Or you may simply be aware of the whole body as it breathes. Mindfulness of the body and the breath is used to help bring us into the present moment, into the lived experience that's only available in this moment. What's sometimes referred to as the eternal now which is always right now. It's not in the past or the future. It's not what happened or what's gonna happen. It's just what's alive here right now. That begins with your body and the breathing. And when you get settled or more centered, grounded in your body and in the present moment, you can start to open up the space of awareness to include not just your body or your breath, but whatever is in the foreground of awareness, whether it be the fact that you're hearing, listening to the sound of my voice, and you're aware of sounds arising, whether it's my voice or some sound where you are in the house, or if you're outside, sound of the leaves rustling, the wind. Or you might be aware of some emotion, feeling, mood that's here, happy or sad. Some kind of emotion irritation, anger, grief, sadness, joy, delight. 
and you don't have to go after any emotion or get rid of any emotion. We simply want to be aware of what's alive here in the moment, whatever it might be. And for some of us, what might be in the foreground of awareness is our thoughts. Thinking about the day, what happened, what went right or wrong, what was enjoyable or difficult. Or we might notice we're thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year. And you don't have to stop your thoughts, but watch what happens if you stay aware of them instead of just believe them, instead of just being enchanted by your thoughts seeing that they're just thoughts arising, sustaining for a moment or a while and passing. As we begin to learn how to rest in the awareness, to rest in that which knows, which is knowing the body or the breath, the sensations, or the feelings, or emotions, or moods, or sounds, or smells, or tastes, or touch, or thoughts, or the various states of consciousness that may arise, peace, ease, emptiness, openness, quiet, And our participation is to simply stay present here, now, in this moment, moment by moment by moment. Staying very present with this life that's living itself as we sit here.
So last week, uh, we talked about the election, the upcoming election. People had, when I asked people what they wanted me to speak about, they, that came up from a number of different people. And there was some anxiety, concern about the election, what's going to happen. So we talked about it as part of practice. And I thought, I was thinking about it during the week, and I thought, oh, I'm going to talk a little tonight about how to deal with the difficulties of the world, uh, which is characterized in Buddhism by the eight worldly winds. It's one of the many lists that the Buddha made or, or that the people after the Buddha wrote down. Um, and so the eight worldly winds and the equanimity that comes when we get the big picture and how helpful that can be. And I called a friend of mine, I was talking to him, I was uh, taking a walk in the park and I talked to a friend of mine who is uh, a Zen person, Zen teacher, and he said, oh yeah, of course you know the bird's nest Roshi story. And I'm like, no, I don't know the bird's nest Roshi story, but why don't you tell it to me? So he told it to me, and then I, I got a copy of it, and uh, and I'd heard the essence of the story before. Um, and I'll read you a little of the story so you get the picture. Um, uh, it's about a Chinese Zen master called Bird's Nest Roshi, and he was called the Roshi, Bird's Nest Roshi because he meditated in the top of a tree. Like that was his thing. Like some of us like to sit on the floor and some in a chair, some in a beautiful room. Some people like to sit in trees. Okay. And uh, it said in the story, one day, uh, uh, Po Chu Yi, Po Chu Yi, who was the governor of the province he lived in and also a poet, paid him a visit, arriving while he was up in his tree. And when the governor found him, he said, what a dangerous seat you have up there, blown about by the winds, subject to the weather. And Bird's Nest Roshi replied to the governor, said, he said, what a dangerous seat you have up there, blown about, oh, excuse me, right. So he replied, your, your seat is more dangerous than mine, governor. Your seat is more dangerous than mine, being blown about by the worldly winds. And of course, the worldly winds, I'll say them quickly, are praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. He said to the, to the governor, your, yours, your seat is more dangerous than mine, being um, blown about by the worldly winds. And the governor asks, what? So the governor wants to know, okay, what are you talking about? What would be helpful if I'm getting blown around? And, and Bird's Nest Roshi says, he says, um, oh, no, excuse me. The governor says, what is the essential teaching of Buddhism? And Bird's Nest Roshi says, to do no harm, do all good, and to free all beings, right? Those are the three pure precepts. And of course, the original way, or sometimes it's put this way, not to commit wrong actions, but to do all good actions and keep the heart and mind pure. 
It's another way to say the same thing, depending on the translation and the time of when you're hearing the teaching and from who. So I give a, a slightly more current modern one, which is uh, do no harm, do all good, save all beings. And instead of uh, keep your heart, mind pure or clear, right? And then the bird's nest Roshi said, this is the teaching of all Buddhas. The governor was not impressed, right? He said, any child of three years old knows that. And Bird's Nest Roshi said, any child, three-year-old child may know it, but even an 80-year-old man may, cannot do it. And so he gives him a little, he gives him a little rub because the governor is like, oh yeah, everybody knows that. But everybody doesn't live from that place of doing good, not harming others, and saving all beings or letting the mind and heart be pure so we help free everybody by our own freedom. It's another way to say it. Um, and so I, I like this story, so I thought I would put it in because I wanted to talk about the eight worldly winds, which, as I said, is about praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure, pain, fame, and disrepute. And you hear they're kind of opposites, right? you know, praise and blame, gain love. But really, when you start to practice, you see they're totally connected, right? You're, you're going to have both in a life. You're going to have praise and blame. You're not going to have one or the other. You're going to have gain and loss. Please, anybody here not have gain and loss, right? Or not have pleasure and pain? Right? I mean, I'm, and I'm kidding you, but I'm asking you to raise your hand if that's your experience, right? Or not to have fame or disrepute, and not to be treated really, you know, like you're somebody or not to be treated like you're nobody, right? Either side of that. And so I thought I would talk a little more about the eight winds and be a little more uh, precise about them. And then look at the kind of equanimity that arises when we have a big picture of reality, which is what the Dharma is about. It's about us having a bigger picture of the Dharma, the truth of what's here and what this reality is, meaning and I'm pointing at myself, but really I'm pointing at each of you. And also what, the, what this reality is going to live with for a life. And so praise and blame, which is a certain way to say it, it's how the world responds to us, right? Um, and uh, of course, we all get approval or admiration or we're liked or some acclaim at times, you know, and it's praise or blame. And then we all get the opposite of that. We all get not liked or we all get accused of not being right or the right thing or the or acting the right way or there's some kind of fault that we get accused of or we're reproached for how we are or who we are or how we act or sometimes just what we look like right and and we're held responsible for things from other people and so the self, the sense of self, the egoic self, gets buffeted by the wind of reaction, 
of people having their response to us, liking us or not liking us. Or of course, internally, we may do the same thing to ourselves, is we may praise ourselves or blame ourselves. And we may believe that praise and blame to the extent that we suffer from it. Because if we're not praising, we're blaming. Instead of seeing objectively about what's true, which is not about praise or blame. It might be about appreciating something we've done or seeing that we made a mistake or did something that wasn't helpful. But that's different than praise and blame. It doesn't have the same judgment. And of course, I, you know, I like to try and be a little bit personal. And of course, teaching is a great place to know about praise and blame. I mean, it's really, if any of you have taught anything, you know about it because some people really like what you say and they think you're really good and, oh, it's great. And you're wonderful. And all of a sudden you're a good person and you're a value. And then other times people don't like what you say or don't agree with what you say or get angry about what you say or get pissed off about what you say or think you're an idiot about what you say. And, um, and, uh, it's really, um, uh, it's quite a practice if you're in that role, because it comes with the role, just does. I haven't seen anybody who teaches who doesn't get praise and blame. And, and I mean, even the highest teachers, the Dalai Lama gets praise and blame, right? There's a whole sect of, of Buddhism, of Tibetan Buddhism that doesn't like the Dalai Lama which, you know, doesn't make sense to me, but human beings are judgmental in that way. They want what they like, don't want what they don't like for whatever reason. And I realized I was, I did some, I did a big cleanup here in my office and went through a lot of talks. I found my first Dharma talk from San Francisco Insight, which, I haven't seen in a long time. So, so I know now exactly how long ago it was we started, which is 26 years ago. And I've been saying 25, 28, 30. I couldn't remember how long it's been. But it's actually been 26 years ago. Uh, 1994, I gave the first talk. And I looked at the talk and I thought, oh, should I give this talk tonight and see how it goes? It wasn't that good. It, it was okay, but... But uh, I didn't have a lot of blame, but I wasn't praising it either. <laughs> you know, it was a first talk and, uh, and very fun to see it and just to see that I still have it and to see, of course, how much things have changed technologically, how, how, how old the, uh, the font was and even the printer that printed that piece of paper for me. And, you know, and things change, right? They don't stay the same. And so, um, you know, and watching the ups and downs of San Francisco Insight for 26 years now, right? San Francisco Insight has gotten a lot of praise and a lot of blame over the past 26 years, or it's really been um, um, loved. It's had some fame. And it's had some disrepute. And I don't mean that in, in, um, in traumatic ways. I mean, just people really liked it. 
and it got really big. It was really big for a while. And then people don't like it so much, not so big, you know, and if big is the measure of good and bad, right, which may, it may not be, but it is one of the measures we use in our society about what's successful and not successful which sometimes gain is loss is talked about success or not success. Hmm. <clears throat> so, and now gain and loss, of course, means to get uh, what we want or to get approval or to get, or to acquire things or to be secure or to improve ourselves. We get what we want we get material things or loss, we lose something material, we lose things, we lose people or we use uh, different parts of the world that we've been part of. And of course, I've watched that in my, my life given I've lived a long life by now and watched my life come and go and a part of it's gone. And it was interesting, I had a phone call yesterday with a cousin of mine who I haven't talked to in 40 years. And, um, and I'd been trying to get a hold of him and for some reason we couldn't connect, couldn't connect. And then he, uh, he uh, my, my oldest brother sent some photos around to the family, myself, my brother, my niece, my nephew, uh, my daughter. And, uh, and he was on the list of people and he started sending some photos he had. So I sent him an email and said, hey, I'd love to talk to you. And he said, sure. And, and then we connected. And so he was a loss that now is a gain. Like, oh, he's back in my life. And it was very interesting to talk to him after 40 years and just get a feel for, in a sense, for who he is and where he is and, and how his life unfolded. Uh, yeah. But of course, we, we lose people all the time. You know, we lose them uh, through death. That's very normal. And we lose them because they move away or we become disconnected from them in some way. We're not friends or, you know, if we were lovers or partners, we break up, things change. And so there's always gain and loss. And then there's pleasure and pain, right? These are... Uh, other than going through the worldly winds. And of course, pleasure is, everybody here knows pleasure in some way, shape, or form, because you've all had some pleasure. It's such a basic animal instinct, pleasure and pain. And, and the pleasure of the senses, whether it's the pleasure of something we see or something we hear or something we smell or taste or feel, or touch, or our heart loves or cares about, and the pleasure of it. And it's really a beautiful part of life, but it's not static, right? There's also pain, and it, it comes. If you have one, you'll have the other, right? Because nothing stays forever. And so, you know, you can have a, you know, a great, you can watch a great movie once, or you can watch it three times maybe or four times but after a while it's not so pleasurable it's like oh yeah that was a great movie but i don't want to see it again 
it's funny, I've been watching some old movies sometimes and it's interesting to see what I, what I still like and what's like, no, I don't need to watch this ever again, right? But it was a great movie at some point. It was very pleasurable to watch it. <clears throat> and so pleasure also has to do with enjoyment or delight or satisfaction. And of course, of all the senses and then pain has to do with hurt or, or uh, ache, whether it's physical or emotional or mental, right? And there's sorrow or anguish or distress or grief or worry. And of course, somebody here in the Sangha who I know and am friends with, her daughter had to have a very serious heart operation this week. And it was a big deal, a teenage girl, 14 years old, had a, had a heart operation and we were all worried about it because you don't know what's gonna happen. You have no idea what's gonna happen. And so it was painful just to wait it through and get through and how to practice while you're waiting for it to happen. And both, of course, for all of us waiting to hear what happened, but of course for her parents, it was extremely difficult because they had to keep, they had to keep some equanimity about it to support her. Although she may have had the most equanimity, she did really good, you know, and, uh, and she's fine. She's home now, which is amazing. And I talked to her mom today and she's not on any, she's taking like ibuprofen, like, you know, this is like two days after open heart surgery, right, in her chest. I mean, that's just, to me, that's just crazy, but great, you know, totally happy. And, and I know the daughter and, you know, a beautiful young girl, woman. And the mother said one thing to me, she praised the people in the hospital who are doing this kind of work every day, every day, every day, right? Not just today when her daughter was there, but yesterday when somebody else's daughter was there and tomorrow when somebody else's child will be there. And so you start to see the, the, um, the beauty of human beings who are devoted to uh, helping people. And as the woman said to me, she said, oh yeah, they were total bodhisattvas. And it is, it's a bodhisattva realm to be in the healthcare realm for many people. And then the last, the last uh, of the worldly wins, fame and disrepute, which that's where its success and failure is, is tied to fame and disrepute. So some of us get renowned or we get a good reputation or we get some distinction or recognition from other people. And then of that's the good side, right, of fame or of being seen, seen well of. Um, and then there's the, the disrepute or we get some disregard or disrespect or dishonor or discredit. And, uh, and it's similar to praise and blame, but on a whole nother level, because it's about one's character at a certain level and one's reputation and all the positive and negative projections that can come if you're in, in any kind of role um, that 
can bring fame and disrepute. <clears throat> and of course, we all get attached to one side or the other, right? We all want to either hold on to the to the uh, pleasure or the gain or the fame or the you know the the goodness of the praise, and we all want to not have any loss or blame or pain or disrepute, and that's very normal. And what we want to do is learn how to be present with all of it, because it's all going to come and go in this lifetime for all of us. There is nobody here this is not part of. And there's a, a, a Zen story I really like that I had here about Hakuin, who was a Zen master, Japanese Zen master. And he was, uh, you know, he, had, he was accused of fathering a child of a young woman who lived near him. And her parents confronted him, went and confronted him because she wasn't married and she was having a child. And, uh, and they yelled at him, confronted him. And reportedly his only reply is, he, he said, is that so? Because they were yelling at him for fathering this child and how he shouldn't have done that, right? And then he, but he lost his reputation, right? Which is about fame and disrepute. He lost his reputation. Um, but when the baby was born, they wanted him to take the baby and he agreed to take it, the baby and he took care of the baby, um, right? And after a year, the young woman finally confessed to her parents that the actual father was a young man who worked in the fish market, right? And so, and so the parents came, went back to Hakuin and apologized and asked for forgiveness and they asked to take the baby back. And he agreed to give the baby back after a year of fathering this baby. And his only response, he said, was, is that so to them? And so he had a certain kind of equanimity about both sides of the praise and blame of the fame and disrepute that he suffered because he wasn't in control of reality and he wasn't in control of other people's beliefs and ideas and opinions about him. And he was, you know, he's a certain kind of mythological archetypal Zen master. So he had a tremendous amount of equanimity. And it's one of the things we happen, that can happen for us or can develop, can grow, can deepen as we keep looking at the bigger pictures or as we keep looking at life through the lens of the Dharma, of the truth, of the way things are. <clears throat> and so I want to talk a little bit more about equanimity, right? And of course, the word equanimity I looked up from Latin, aquis, means balanced. And the, actually, uh, oh, I don't know, I thought I had the, wait, let's see if I can find it. Mm. There it is. Equanimity comes from the Latin word aquis animus, aquis animus. And uh, 
And so aqueous means balanced and animus means spirit. So to be equanimous means to have a balanced spirit. And I think that's a beautiful understanding. It's not that we get rid of our spirit, our life, but we are in balance with the spirit, with our heartfulness, with our, the goodness of who and what we are. And of course, uh, I think about my own balance and imbalance. Uh, and I didn't say this last week, but two weeks ago, I took a big fall and I really hurt myself. It wasn't a bike fall, but it was, I was working out and doing a certain kind of jumping up on boxes. And I took a big fall. I could barely get up, really. It was like, it, I hurt myself. I had a hamstring contusion, I got told, and um, by the medical people. And I had to get an x-ray to make sure I didn't fracture anything. But I was walking around with a cane for two weeks. And it was really uncomfortable and hard. And I did not like it. I don't like hurting my body. It's not fun. Uh, uh, but it called upon, you know, me to find some equanimity with the pain of physical discomfort. And I'm good at that because I've had enough physical discomfort in my life. I don't need any more, but it happens. And, um, and so it was amazing to watch walking so slowly with the cane because I still wanted to get a little movement every day and I was doing that and then watch it slowly get better and slowly you know I needed the cane for quite a while and then like you know five days ago something like that I had uh, I finally had the first walk without the cane and then by the next day I was doing 10,000 steps without the cane and and it was really pain and pleasure, right? It was the pain of the being hurt. And then it was the pleasure of, oh, my body's still working. I can, excuse me, I'm okay, right? But really bigger than that was that equanimity to stay present in the moment with each of it. Because that's, to me, that's the only skillful thing to do. Everything else is suffering. Everything else is the second arrow in Buddhism of adding on to the pain and difficulty. And, you know, it's so easy to worry and fear and project about what would happen. What if my body never got better, right? Which is, of course, the first thought the mind has, which is, oh, first thought is really, oh, shit. And then the second thought is, what if it never gets any better? And, uh, and the thoughts are there, but we can be aware of the thoughts and not lose our equanimity because the mind is so disturbed, is upset, right? And it's the same with emotions. We want to learn how to be balanced with them, even as they're rising and passing. And I did see a really nice quote from Joanna Macy, who believes equanimity is deepened by going back further, deeper in our understanding about the very origins of the cosmos. And she says this, she said, if we are not separate from the living world, and of course, we are part of the living world, we're part of the liveness that's here in the world, in the earth, 
and but also in the universe. We are part of that aliveness. And she says, um, if we are not separate from the living world, then we should, should, we should act our age. We are four and a half billion years old in terms of the origins of life, right? And 15 billion years old in terms of the big bang. bang. Every atom and every molecule in every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. That's something to tap into. See if you can feel that. That's a deep understanding. I'm still working on that one, right? But it's a great, under, it's beautiful to present the bigger picture, right? Every atom and every molecule in, our, in every cell of our body goes back 15 billion years. That The life that is now beating our hearts and breathing our lungs now didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. And for me, this is a wonderful doorway to equanimity, she said, right? And so it's a perspective that includes the Dharma and the truth. You know, um, Rumi said it another way. He said, live in the nowhere that you come from. Live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. Right, live in the bigger picture of reality. Then the last piece is just to say something about the seven factors and the movement towards equanimity is that the seven factors a lot have to do with wanting to get the good, good stuff of, you know, pleasure and gain and praise and fame. And with practice, we can relax about things and see what's here in this moment, right? Whatever we want to happen or don't want to happen, can we be here and see what's true? Like even in this moment, whatever difficulty you have, what's here in this moment, this single moment, because this is the only moment there is, right? And to keep finding our ground in the aliveness that's here in this moment, because that's where equanimity is. And that's where the ability to weather the storms of life protect us from the eight worldly winds. And so part of equanimity is having the bigger picture that I've been pointing at and remaining balanced and centered in the midst of all the comings and goings and injustices and the triumphs. And it's not passivity, equanimity. That's an important part. It's not passivity. It's, a, it's, it's being active. It enables us to, it enables us to engage deeply in the world and deeply in what's going on and be engaged and at the same time know how to find our ground, our center, our stability, which is always right here. It's always right here. It's nowhere else, or maybe it's everywhere else, but it's right here. Mm -hmm. 
And so learning how to stay grounded, and this has to do with the election even, and keep an even keel, even as we work with systems that are oppressive or controversial or challenging or dysfunctional or unjust. Right, so cultivating the equanimity that's found right now. And I have two, two last quotes of which I'm only going to read one. I'm going to find it. Um, This is from Suzuki Roshi, and he told this story when he was dying to somebody who came into his room, and they had a conversation. And he said, my practice has changed a lot about two years ago when I almost drowned. And this is, he's saying this as he's dying. He's got cancer, he knows he's dying. And he said, my practice changed about two years ago when I almost drowned. I wanted to cross the creek at Tassajara, which is the mountain uh, monastery that the Zen, San Francisco Zen Center has. He said, I, actually, I cannot actually swim, but the students were enjoying the water so much, I thought I would join them, right? And so he went and he said, and there were so many uh, beautiful people over there that he tried to go over there forgetting that I couldn't swim and I almost drowned. But I knew I would not die. I knew I would not drown because there were so many students and someone who would help me. So I was not so serious, right? Like he, not, he was projecting an idea. Uh, and so I was not so serious, but the feeling was pretty bad. I was swallowing water. So I stretched out my arms, hoping someone would catch me, but no one helped me. And I decided to go to the bottom to walk but that was not possible either. And I could not reach the bottom and I could not get above the surface. What I saw were the legs of all the people and I could not take hold of their legs and I was rather scared. At that time, I realized that we never have good practice until we become serious, until we become serious. Because I knew I was not dying, I was not so serious. And because I was not so serious, I had a very difficult time. But if I knew I was dying, I would not have struggled anymore. I would have stayed still because I thought I had another moment. I did not become serious. Since then, my practice has improved. Now I have confidence in my practice. So it was an interesting experience. I was among all these beautiful people and these beautiful people could not save me. And as you know, as you know, he's saying to the person, I am dying because of my sickness, not because of water. When I'm dying, various demons, as well as beautiful people, will be happy to be with me. And I will be happy to be with them. And I will be happy to be with them. Everything is with us. And without being disturbed, we are happy with everything. 
until it is difficult to feel this way. Usually it is difficult to feel this way because we are involved in gaining ideas, expecting some improvement in the future. When you are not thinking of, you have another moment, then naturally you can accept things as they are, you can see things as they are. You will have perfect wisdom at that time. So that's a story of Suzuki Roshi learning about equanimity when he was afraid of dying at the, in the stream at Tassahara. I've been in that stream many times and uh, it's beautiful and the people are beautiful. What he doesn't say there is, oh, and of course everybody's naked, right? Except he wasn't, but it's like people just go naked in, in Tassahara. He's very discreet sometimes. Um, yeah, so those are some thoughts about the eight worldly winds, about equanimity. Uh, I'd like to hear from you. Any thoughts? Um, yeah, what would you like to talk about? Please go to the participants uh, tab at the bottom of your screen raise your hand or of course I'll just call on you if you would rather that I just called on you without raising your hand which always is interesting but it will go to Don and I just want to say this also and especially people if you haven't spoken before here please do it even if you're shy it's really great to get to know you and have your voice in the Dharma in this way okay please unmute Don okay I'm here um, my name is Don. First of all, I just want to thank you for the, uh, that Dharma talk. It um, really hit me how much I appreciate when I'm listening to the Dharma. It's like, it's really, uh, I feel blessed to be able to hear it. My question is this, sort of like a personal thing. So from what I understand, and I don't understand much of Buddhism, but there's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I practice the Buddha the way I practice the Buddha and I practice the Dharma the way I practice the Dharma. And I put a lot of time to that. I'm basically an introvert, uh -huh. almost like a loner. I mean, uh -huh. I don't, I, I mean, I live with my wife and my son. So I, I live with my wife and my son. Okay, you're not but totally alone, alone, but yeah. Otherwise okay. I prefer to be home. Um, I don't, I'm not comfortable around people. I get mm -hmm. really nervous and don't know what to say and all that kind of stuff. So if you could talk about Sangha and given that I don't want to be around people, mm -hmm. my interpretation of Sangha is being around people and working with people, but I may have that wrong. Not necessarily. Yeah. You, you so, know, that's often part of it, but it's a bigger picture is Sangha. And so, I mean, and of course you will be around people even more than you want to be. Right. I mean, that's just part of life. Like my friend was saying, whose daughter was in the hospital, she had to be in the hospital and not just with her daughter, but with the, she'd be in the waiting room with the other parents who were waiting for their children who were in surgery, right? And so who knows where you're gonna be with other people. And Sangha is, be careful about, you know, there's a Sangha of all of us here to, tonight, right, at SFI, and that's Sangha, 
And then there's bigger Sangha. Spirit Rock is a bigger part of our Sangha. You're part of that if you're here because it's part of our lineage, my lineage, right? And then it's part of a bigger Sangha, which comes from Ajahn Chah, right? And comes from Thailand, right? Which is where Spirit Rock comes from. And then it's part of a bigger Sangha, which is, comes originally from the Buddha and from India. And so you're part of a bigger Sangha. And all of those are good Sanghas to be part of. And it doesn't mean you're hanging out with the Buddha, but you are actually, but you may not be hanging out with the living human being. You're hanging out with the consciousness that this all came out of. And that's another understanding of Sangha is we're all here together, whether we like it or not. And it doesn't mean we have to like everybody in the Sangha. You just have to love everybody in the song. <laughs> They're good. That's good. You got it. That was a good laugh. <laughs> okay. And so really relax because you're already, when you know, you have your wife and child, that's part of your very personal sangha. And, you know, and there'll be more like, you know, I mean, who knows, you know, maybe your child will grow up and have kids and, and then you'll be a grand sangha person, you know, and let's see. And, but just watch out for the narrowing of ideas of what it means. That's the important part. Thank you so very much. Sure. You're welcome. Who else? Yeah, please speak up even if you haven't spoken before and even if you have spoken up a lot, don't you can keep speaking up again. Come on, some thoughts, feelings, ideas, beliefs, agreeing with what I said, disagreeing. Okay. okay. I'll talk. Okay, you gotta raise your hand though, bro. What's with the no, no, that's not how you raise your hand. I'm gonna teach you how you raise. Oh, your I hand. know, okay, Sam. Okay. <laughs> I'm a newbie. So, under participants? Yeah. So, you see uh, what it says, raise your hand? <laughs> now I'm more embarrassed okay. than I was even yeah, before. Yeah, don't worry, but forget about it now. Let's just talk. Next okay. time, next time we'll we'll give a demonstration. Go easy on me. I was one of the originals from uh, Presidio Heights. Oh, really? That's yeah. And what's your name again? I forget. Andrew. 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 Thank you, Andrew. I, I've been around so long. I used to go by Andy. Okay. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you're older now, so now you're Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> I related to so much. I. I don't know what to focus on. Well, I kind of do. The um, you talked about um, not adding on to the pain, and I I'm an expert at that. And I had a kind of experience that I could relate to your fall with. I had a resurgence of my asthma about five weeks ago. Uh -huh. And it's interesting because I, I tend to come back to meditation when I'm having trouble breathing. So it's, it's, it's ironic. 
It's not, it's not ironic, you know, it's a medit the Dharma is about suffering and the end of suffering and suffering is the key motivation for 99% of the people who come to the Dharma. But the irony is that I, I have trouble <clears throat> just breathing normally and part of the practice is to breathe normally. So it makes it, it it's ironic because it's much easier for me to practice when I'm well than when I'm sick, but I need it more when I'm sick, or at least I think I do. You think you do, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> well, that's okay, so you're talking about pleasure and pain, and the pluses yeah. and minuses of both, because one of the minuses of the pleasure of when you're breathing normally is you don't come to group. <laughs> you don't practice, because you don't need to. Yeah. But I did have some other pleasure too because a few hours ago I went on my first bike ride in five weeks and it was so beautiful. <laughs> it was a short ride, but it was. Uh -huh. I, I live in the East Bay now and the air is not always clean here, but uh -huh. the air was so clean and fresh and there was a little bit of fog from a distance from where you are. Uh -huh. it, was, it was such joy. Uh -huh. Sounds, so, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I would have liked, I'm, I haven't gotten on my bike again yet. I'm waiting till, because the legs still, they're still, it's not perfect. And I want, I don't want to uh, exacerbate what got hurt. I mean, I, it was so black and blue and so a mess, but I'm looking forward to taking a bike ride because even with the fog or without the fog, I'm happy to take a nice flat bike ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to have patience and you know, not get it all back at once. No, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. And yeah, Andrew was saying he was here at Presidio Heights, that's where we were 26 years ago. There was no social distancing on that couch. <laughs> no, there, there isn't, but it, that was a different era. <laughs> And this is a different era. Good to see you. Thanks. Um, okay. Buddy, I have a lot of energy, everybody, from the giving the talk, and then nobody's raising their hand. I'm like, where is everybody? Come on, what's up? There we go. Karen and Francisco, we got both your names now. That's great. Please unmute. Hi. Um, hi, Karen. Hi. I, it was a timely talk. I, it's such a hard time to... The part where you talked about um, just kind of being being present with what's happening now, mm -hmm. um, that's something that I've been working with. And, and, and I just feel this pull because, yeah, I, I want to know what's going to happen with the election. And I want to know... When are we going to have a vaccine? When are we going to be able to be together? And so I keep mm -hmm. feeling those kind of pulls and, and others, you know, anxiety about, you know, different, all kinds of things, but those are the big ones. And, mm -hmm. um, and, the, and the thing that makes sense with that is to just focus on what's actually happening now mm -hmm. and, and, um, and work with that, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, thank you. This is just a, a good, good talk and a good time. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah. I just keep dealing with that pull. Yeah, well, the pull is there, but you can yeah. be aware of the pull without believing the pull. Yeah. 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 Great. Yeah. No, that's, that's called freedom, really, because it's not like the yeah. pulls are going to go away. No. We, we all want, you know, a vaccine, and we all want something good to happen in the election, or we all want many good different things. And, uh, and so good to be aware of that and then to keep finding our center so we can respond to reality as it happens. I mean, the anxiety, the anxiety is there and it's not really going to go anywhere, mm -hmm. but there is something about just acknowledging that and being with it and, um, and then taking in what's actually happening in the mm -hmm. real moment. And, but also take in what's really happening about the anxiety. Yeah. How do you experience it? If you can keep getting closer to it, more intimate with it, mm. uh, sometimes it, you'll metabolize it. Mm -hmm. And that can happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that anything happens all the time forever, but when that happens, that's real then you get the, the other side of pa the pain of anxiety, you get the pleasure of the anxiety being gone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Emily. Where are you, Emily? Um, my talk, can you see me more easily? Pardon? I thought maybe if I talked, if you have me on speaker view, then you'll find me. Yeah, now I found you and I've got you on speaker view. Okay. I, um, well, right before this, I was on a virtual day of remembrance for the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Because today mm -hmm. is okay. um, Thank you for the bringing that into the room. I didn't know that. And yeah, of course, I look August 9th. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And uh, it was a really powerful program with... Um, three survivors, um, two from mm -hmm. Hiroshima and one from Nagasaki and several films. Um, and one of the things I've appreciated about participating in a number of events um, with Japanese American activists in the last few months virtually has been the connection of their, well, in this case, it was about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the other events that I've participated in have been um, people who they themselves or their families were incarcerated in the camps in, um, mm -hmm. by the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And so I was just thinking about, and, and the, the, the events that I participated in have all been linking that experience to um, border detention, to Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. to sure. the kind of effects of the pandemic and around inequities. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a lot of, there's been a lot of conversation about intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. and about collective trauma within a community. What was the second trauma? Collective, collective. Collective trauma, yes. Um, and so, and as a Jewish woman, I, you know, I'm, and I'm sure you are and many people here are familiar with many different types of collective trauma, including Holocaust and pogroms. And mm -hmm. um, so I was just thinking about both the developing our own skill in equanimity individually, which is a challenge and 
a lifelong effort and kind of what happens when you can have that sense and then, you know, something happens that's upsetting or horrendous, you know, and how you are able to keep equanimity. But I was thinking about these horrendous events historically and in the present and how you build collective equanimity to yeah. have a transformation, you know, in society from that wellspring. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Thank you for bringing all of that into the room. And uh, especially given the anniversary and the horror of World War II, I've just been learning a little more about did we really need to do that to win the war and why that was done, which is still being understood in terms of the bombing of, of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, we didn't need to do it. <laughs> pardon? I think it's clear we didn't need to do it. Well, you know, that's, of course, and there were people who believed we did need to do it at that time. Yeah. And, um, and, but it, it also had a bigger picture I wasn't aware of in terms of the political world that uh, uh, the United States of America was navigating for post-World War II. And that's part of the reason why the bombing happened. So in addition, but also what you're talking about in terms of collective trauma is one reason that it's very important to start seeing Sangha is not one thing, but is small and is bigger and bigger and bigger. And really we're all in this together. And that's the real, the biggest Sangha is what period we're all here together. And then how do we deal with the different um, trauma that different particular groups have had to deal with in their life, whether it be Japanese or Japanese American here in this country, or black people, or Jewish people, or Islamic people, or whoever it might be, because there is trauma happening um, both currently and intergenerationally. And, and it's something as we grow up as human beings, it's something we're all learning about and hopefully growing up with in terms of seeing how to uh, take care of ourselves and one another. And so the collective healing is one about, is a, it's the same practice. It's about waking up together and to really see that we're really in this together, we're not separate, and that the trauma that somebody's experienced um, or that their people have experienced is still alive and that we're dealing with that. And um, I've been looking at the trauma of the original colonialists who came and founded America right? Because they came out of the Middle Ages and there was, you know, they were traumatized in their way. And of course, they brought that trauma here. And then that trauma set up this country. So the country was born out of trauma. And it's, an, it's really, it's fascinating to keep uh, waking up to how big the picture is. I, I'll just say one last thing. I, I think part of the waking up is also like when you said there, you know, the debate about whether or not we had to, to bomb to, to win the war, like mm -hmm. the framing of that question or who, you know, who frames that question that way. Right, right. Like, 
it's like it was an it was an inhumane atrocity that never should have happened and so when people it's so removed i think for people to ask that question like did we need to do that to win the war it's, it's like mm -hmm. you have to like come from a different angle to recognize like um the responsibility that the u.s has and and the trauma that just lives on so long for um I mean, one of the people in the in the film was was talking about how he lives with this every day. It wasn't just the people who were killed yeah. right away or a few years later, but just he sure. thinks about it, dreams about it. You know, lost most of his family, and yeah. but I just think about that framing of kind of how we think well, about. The world. But of course, the framing is part of what we're learning about too, because we're we're speaking from a a position of total privilege, right? And so we're framing all these questions from privilege. And, and that's not a bad thing, in my opinion. It's just the way things are. And then how do we wake up with privilege or with the differences that occur in all of society in, in terms of what, whatever of the isms it might be, whether it's racism or sexism or genderism or, or the economic isms around money it's still we all have different levels of privilege we're either you know on top or on bottom whatever way you want to say it so how do you work with that because that is part of reality also and that's where the dharma it's there's no simple answer it's really a lived practice thank you great thank you thanks for bringing that here in, in the room Well, there's anybody else? Okay, Maggie. Oh, hi, Maggie. Uh, please unmute. Hey there. Hey. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Now I'm trying to see you. Oh, hi. Um, can you see me? No, I can't see you. I just see in next to your name, I see a microphone. I don't see, and now I see a camera too, but I don't see you. Maybe you're, you're emptier than we know. <laughs> yeah, there you are. Okay, good. <laughs> well, yeah. um, hi. Hi, I just wanted to comment the discussion on the language um, uh -huh. that you brought up with Emily and talking about that in the framing. Yeah. Um, the what came to me from your dharma talk tonight and the nature of dualisms and dualities uh -huh. and how like we think in that way how that can perpetuate framing as well uh -huh. through, like either or right um yeah. and without duality thinking with and say that again the last with and with and yes yes yes, yes. that's something that resonated with me and i just wanted to share um great. just touching on what you and emily spoke about great well it's so important because we're looking at different levels of reality and i think you know me well enough i like duality and i like non-duality and i like even beyond duality and non-duality and that's something that we're still all learning about 
And so, and, but duality is not a bad thing. It's just not the end of the story. And that's what's so important because duality often has, it's one or the other, this or that, etc. And it's not, it's just pointing it to there's difference. There is this and there is that, or we could say there's both, both this and that, which is what you're pointing at. And of course, from a different perspective, this and that goes away because it's all one thing. Right, but that's a whole nother level of reality. And we don't want to be prejudiced against any level of reality, whether it's dual or non-dual. And yeah. So great. Thanks for giving your voice in the room. Good the to see you. Too. Pardon? Knowing the wisdom of both. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, good. So Thank you both. Good to see you both. Okay, everybody, we'll stop. We'll do a little sharing of merit for, for this and that and both. Okay, we'll share the merit with everyone and no one and at the same time, appreciating the time, place, opportunity, good fortune we have to be here to study together, to learn together, to wake up together to realize, to see the big picture of the, the eight worldly winds and the kind of equanimity that can come as we keep waking up, as we take things seriously, as Suzuki Roshi would say. And may the good fortune we have to be here go out in every direction, in every world, in every realm of reality. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering in any form and in every form. May we awaken together. May we all be free and realize the truth, the Dharma, the goodness of what's here. see you. I think I'm here next week. So if I'm here, I'll see you next week. <laughs> okay. Be well, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.